This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cool Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Meryl Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 231 of Fireside. Today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we have another tale of that wicked and wonderful creature of Irish folklore. She is probably the most iconic and most famous of Irish ghosts, and she is the Banshee. And this is a tale about a specific family Banshee of the McCarthy family. But before we get down to meeting her, a very big warm welcome to any new and indeed returning listeners. If this is your very first episode of Fireside, why? don't you listen to this if you like it this is a very typical episode of what we do although particularly eerie and spooky for this time of the year of course uh, that is if you're listening to it as it comes out um, and if you do like it why don't you head right back to the very beginning uh, 230 episodes and over and nearly five years of seeing what we've been building up to with this podcast and if you're a returning listener a particular uh, thank you I uh, thank you always anyway for your continued support but these last couple of weeks, this is the eighth episode of Fireside I've recorded in the last two weeks, trying to catch up with that for a lost time earlier in this year. And it's been very, very gratifying and rewarding to see um, how instantly all of these episodes have been reaching an audience. Um, you haven't fallen away, a lot of you, uh, you, you've been there, and it's great to see that you're listening to these episodes as they're coming out and to see this huge boost in the listenership over the last couple of weeks uh it's really made me feel like it's been worthwhile to uh to make this push uh to try and get up to and back to scratch at 250 episodes by the end of the year so a particular thank you so much for all of the loyal listeners who still listen to these podcasts as they come out and um, all the usual ways you can support the podcast or of course you can follow me over on instagram at fireside bard you can email me at the fireside bard at gmail.com if you're not on social media but social media is the best place to get in touch with me and you can share this on your stories and tell your friends about it um, that makes a huge difference and really is the best way to keep growing the podcast and if you want to support me in a more direct way you can buy my book garden sea a neomyth of home which is about to turn two years old uh, the paperback of which can be sent anywhere around the world uh, is available from the headstuff website or instantly on kindle via amazon um, and all of the links are in the description below for that 
And finally, you can support Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com, where for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you want, you can gain access to bonus material not just for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Links in the description, and that's hard sells out of the way. It's lovely to be recording with you again today, or this evening as it is for me. Um, there's a lot going on, um, quite positive stuff going on, which is nice. Um, uh, next week I'm about to start rehearsals on a new play called Describe the Night, which is on with Glass Mask Theatre on Dawson Street in Dublin, uh, which will be on from the 20th of November until the 9th of December. Uh, for anyone who'd be around Dublin at that time, it's a great play. I'm really looking forward to getting started on it. And it's been some time since I've worked on a play that I haven't written myself, um, since certainly since probably before COVID. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. It's a great cast, a great script uh, that tells a, a very potent story of the rise and fall of uh, Soviet Russia from the perspective of these seven interweaving lives and I'm playing a, a real-life writer, Isaac Babel, who was executed on made-up charges during Stalin's purges in the 1930s, and it's been wonderful uh, reading all of his work and trying to get inside his mind, and yes, I'm very much looking forward to that, so I'm sure I'll talk about it more over the coming weeks, but that's what's coming up for anyone who might be around, and if that sounds like something you're interested in, um, I can put, I'll start putting a link to the tickets in the description as well. Um, and I'm also going on the radio this Friday, uh, which will be October 27th. I'm going on, on RT2FM, which for listeners outside of Ireland is the national broadcaster here. I'm going on with Jen Zamparelli to talk about uh, Oinagat, which is the Cave of Cats, the entrance to the other world in Rathcrown, County Roscommon, uh, which I have visited myself. Uh, so we're going to go on, I'm going to go on at 10 past 10 this Friday, the 27th of October, uh, to talk about Samhain and all the weird and wonderful things associated with Rathcrown. I'm delighted to be going back into RTE, so it's very exciting going in there. I'm looking forward to chatting with Jen about it. Uh, so anyone, yes, anyone who is on the commute or whatever, that'll be there. Um, hopefully it'll be, I'll be able to download it as a link as well so that you can listen to it afterwards. Um, but those are nice things to talk about, but what we're going to be talking about mainly, of course, is this story. So we have another tale of the Banshee today. Uh, I did get a lovely message today um, from someone who said that they find it found it quite eerie and quite spooky, which is obviously... Um, it's a weird thing to say I'm delighted about, it, but it was quite a chilling tale to adapt, so I'm glad some people found it, found a potency to it, and that it was spooky, because it is a spooky time of the year. Um, so I hope the rest of you enjoyed that as well. Please do let me know your thoughts on it. Um, we have a very different kind of Banshee story today, which I said at the end of the last episode would be more... This reminded me more like a classic piece of Gothic literature. I got real... Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, or even parts of Dracula vibes off this story, which it probably would have been uh, collected and written down around the same time when Gothic literature was very, very popular. Um, so it'd be interesting if you get that atmosphere from uh, from my adaptation of it, certainly, um, because I wasn't intentionally going with that style, but just trying to write this story in my own words, as I always do. Um, so we'll see how it comes out. 
But we'll chat more about it afterwards, of course. But this is the McCarthy Banshee on Fireside. The McCarthy Banshee. Charles McCarthy was the last surviving son. When his father died and Charles inherited his entire vast fortune and lands, the boy was barely 20 years old. Never having to worry about money again, Charles did what any spoiled 20-year-old would do, and he went straight to the pub. In fact, he never really left except when he went to parties or banquets or around the country to other pubs, parties and banquets. He lived a debaucherous lifestyle of whiskey, wine and women. The company he kept were even richer, more spoiled heir apparents than him, who selfishly squandered their inheritance. Charles's mother, Mrs. McCarthy, was still alive, and worried greatly for her son. She tried in vain to teach him compassion, charity, and virtue, to think of others, even occasionally. But she could not wade through the whiskey to get through to her son. By the time he was twenty-four, Charles had become so heavy and unhealthy with a life of hedonistic gluttony and indulgence that one night A fever gripped him. He became delirious and had to be taken home to bed. He could barely sleep and soon lost consciousness. Mrs. McCarthy waited day and night by her son's bedside. She now didn't worry for his life, but for his everlasting soul. She prayed that if he was to die that the fever and delirium would fade even for a few moments so that he could repent his sins on earth before meeting his maker. Rumours spread around the estate that Charles was going to die. With no heir, numerous relations, both close and tenuous, flocked to the McCarthy estate like ravens around a dead wolf. The only people genuinely concerned for Charles were his mother and his best friend, James Ryan. James had spent his entire childhood with Charles and had always been there to help him spend his money. But the two did genuinely care for each other. James did not seek inheritance, just to comfort his dying friend. Perhaps... He felt partly responsible, too, for Charles's ill health. After a number of days and still no improvement, a doctor was summoned. He inspected the now pale and almost lifeless body. And when the doctor was mounting his horse, he turned to James Ryan and said, He's dead, Jim. There was still breath in him but any minute Charles was expected to die. Mrs. McCarthy was the very last to accept her son's fate. It did, after all, fall to her to organize his wake and to deal with the salivating supposed mourners. 
The night the final breath left Charles, his mother finally returned to her room, but she did not sleep. She had not got to say goodbye to him properly, to hear her son's voice once more, and to hear him regret his crimes against the Almighty. But while Mrs. McCarthy lay awake in bed, she heard a scream from the next room, then footsteps, then more shouts, both male and female. Mrs. McCarthy leapt from her bed and into her son's room, there was Charles, sitting bolt upright in bed, returned from the dead. He did not speak. He merely stared ahead, as if his body had returned, but language had not. Charles, his mother said, speak to me. Are you alive? I am, Charles said hoarsely. Mother, sit down. I have something to tell you that may upset you to hear. Perhaps you won't even believe me, but let me say it. Mrs. McCarthy sat, and Charles began his tale. In the past twelve hours, once my soul left this world, I have sat before the judgment of God. He is as real as the crimes I have committed against him. I knelt in regret and terror before the choirs, thinking of nothing but my impending eternal damnation. But, Mother, a miracle happened. I was told to return to the mortal world for three years. Three years exactly. These years are a gift to mend my ways and do good here on earth. In three years I will return to judgment and either gain access to paradise or be forever lost. Mrs. McCarthy did not take convincing. She believed her son's every word. It was indeed a miracle. She had prayed for her son to be given the chance to become a good man and her prayer had been answered. And Charles McCarthy was as good as his word and better. He cut back his drinking and other indulgences. He didn't become preachy to his friends either, but people began to emulate Charles's good habits. He proved that one could be sober and good crack, giving without being frivolous and sensible without being stingy. Long before the three-year sentence was up, Everyone had all but forgotten about the prophecy and accepted Charles McCarthy as the civilized, kind, and generous man he had become. When Charles was approaching his 27th birthday, he had never looked healthier in his body or in his mind. He had cleaned up his diet and his behavior and it was hard for anyone to imagine him not living a long and full life. James Ryan, the best friend of Charles, was to get married to Jane Osborne. James wanted nothing more than for Charles to be the best man. The wedding was to be held in the magnificent Spring House, which was a lengthy journey away. The date was to be that Sunday. 
the day before Charles was set to die. I don't know, Charles said to James. This Monday is the last day of the prophecy. Perhaps I shouldn't tempt fate by going on a long journey. Certainly Charles's mother voiced these concerns. Mrs. McCarthy had never forgotten about Charles's second chance. She hoped that since he had completely reformed his ways, Charles would be smiled upon by heaven and not taken again so soon. That being said, if Mrs. McCarthy had her way, Charles would never leave the house and never leave her sight. But James Ryan said, Surely if you were going to die on Monday, you would be feeling unwell now. Perhaps that vision was entirely a fever. And even if he were to die on Monday, serving as my best man could be your final good act on earth. Why do you think I picked this Sunday as a date? Charles McCarthy was convinced. They all boarded a carriage and set off for Spring House. The journey was long and uneasy and lasted through the night. The sky was dark and cloudy. The rain was heavy and the road wet and mucky. The horses trudged dutifully and the wheels of the cart bumped and rolled over rocky roads. Mrs. McCarthy was still uneasy about the entire affair. Charles did all he could to assuage her worries. But just as Mrs. McCarthy began to calm, a loud scream was heard outside of her carriage. It sounded like a woman, but in such pain that the sound was the last gasp of life. It was high-pitched but guttural. The sounds had erupted from the core of the soul and exploded out of her mouth. The passengers looked outside but could not see the source of the scream. Leary, Charles called to the carriage driver. Go and see if that woman is all right. Leary did not slow the horses. That's no woman, sir, he said firmly and suddenly the passengers felt the carriage move faster as Leary lashed the horses. Again they heard the horrific scream, closer this time. That cannot be, said Charles. We are moving too fast to be kept up with on foot. Still they could see nothing through the windows of the carriage. It was only as the car approached the turn for Spring House that the moon revealed itself from behind the clouds and illuminated the ground. There, hovering over the hedges, Charles could see the vision of a woman. It looked like she was wrapped in a loose bedsheet, her hair uncovered, long and messy. The woman looked so thin it was as if she had been strung out on the rack. Still she screamed, now the passengers could see her. The creature was pointing with one finger in the direction of Hill House. She frantically waved with the other hand, as if she was guiding the carriage to the place they were already heading. The driver Leary called down. I am not keen to go where the banshee guides us. Bad will come of this. Mark my words. Mrs. McCarthy did mark Leary's words. The banshee was a terrible omen of death to come. But Charles McCarthy did not seem worried. 
The next day, after a restless sleep, James Ryan and Charles McCarthy went for a walk in the gardens of Spring House, which gave the estate its name. James thanked Charles for coming, despite the prophecy, and Charles said, Whatever will be, will be, but I'm glad I got to spend this time with you, my best friend. And then Charles McCarthy was shot. Bang! No one saw the gun coming. No one knew where it had been fired from. Charles went to the ground, and James Ryan held his friend. Charles, he cried. I'm all right, said Charles. It's a flesh wound. The bullet had luckily passed directly through the flesh of Charles's leg. It had not touched bone, so upon the doctor's inspection, it was assumed that Charles would be right as rain in a couple of days. The wedding could go ahead as planned, although this time with Charles on a walking stick. But what of the gunman? Who shot Charles McCarthy? The guests of Spring House were not long finding out. For Jane Osborne, the fiancée of James Ryan, was seen wandering around the gardens later that night in a frenzy, shouting, I've finally done it. I've killed James Ryan. Jane Osborne had fallen madly in love with James Ryan and was thrilled when he asked her to marry her. But James spent so much time away from home, usually with Charles McCarthy. Before, they had spent their time drinking, but now there was none of that. But still, her fiancé was never at home. Jane began to feel lonely, then jealous. Then she began to resent and even hate James. But she could not back out of the marriage. She refused to spend a life being neglected. And so it was Jane Osborne who fired the gun. She had been aiming at her fiancé, but she hit Charles McCarthy. Jane was taken and detained in her room. When she was told that she had not killed James, but injured Charles, Jane was devastated. She demanded she be taken to see him to apologize. When Jane Osborne finally reached Charles's room, she found him in bed, barely conscious. The flesh wound of the bullet, which was sure to quickly heal, had not. And Charles had descended once again into delirium. Mrs. McCarthy was once again at her son's side as was his best friend, James Ryan. But this time Charles had a smile on his face. He was ready and satisfied with his time on earth. He had been promised three years, and he had spent them the best way he knew how. Charles McCarthy quietly and peacefully passed on to meet his maker. James Ryan and Mrs. McCarthy began to gently weep. Jane Osborne was inconsolable. She began to scream at her fiancé as she was dragged back to her room. You have done this to me, James Ryan. Not I. You have killed Charles McCarthy. And you have killed me. Jane's screams reminded all of the banshee who had ushered them to Spring House. Jane Osborne and James Ryan became the pawns to orchestrate the wishes of the McCarthy Banshee. The End
So if the security guard never saw Aoife leave the building, how could Mark have committed the crime? And then there's a letter from the confession box. Anyway, sorry for the rambling voice note. But to answer your question, no. If this sounds like you, then Headstuff Podcasts competition Join the Cast is offering you the chance to record your own podcast series worth €50,000. Simply pitch your idea at jointhecast.ie. T's and C's apply. And there we have the tale of the McCarthy Banshee on Fireside. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, I. anyone who has read any gothic literature such as Jane Eyre or Dracula... Um, I think we'll hopefully see what I mean about the the kind of sense of heightened melodrama in this story that isn't necessarily as present in a lot of the folk tales that we adapt. Um, there's nothing jovial or even frivolous or lighthearted present in this. Um, and this was quite an expansive tale to um, adapt. This took a lot of streamlining and kind of... Um, fusing characters together and one big thing one big challenge was there are portion the large portions of this story in the fairy and folktales book wb8 um i believe this is another t croft and croker adaptation uh, that are written in forms of letters which again is very dracula because uh, dracula is an an epistolary novel uh, is written as a series of correspondence and letters and this story is kind of both. It's written in prose style, but then also written in this letter form where the plot is slowly revealed. But there are several other characters within it, which ultimately I certainly found to be a little bit expendable, um, such as the episode with the Banshee herself, who, again, only makes a cameo appearance, so to speak, in this in this version um, whereas in the last tale, uh, we had a very, very visceral face-to-face with the Banshee, which is one of the main reasons I did that last story, um, because most Banshee tales are more like this one, where she makes her appearance, but you don't really get much of an experience with her. Um, but it's interesting that... I talk a lot on this podcast about the overlap and the clash between paganism and Catholicism within Irish folklore, um, which are naturally opposing ideologies. But in Ireland, it seems, certainly within the folklore and in the storytelling tradition, they had frequent overlaps. Um, and so particularly when you have figures associated with the dead. Um, so... We have a more of a a Christian ideology at the beginning of the story where Charles um, goes to heaven or goes to purgatory and meets his maker and then gets this chance to have a, a kind of Ebenezer Scrooge second chance here on earth and does that. And his crimes are not even that great by a modern sensibility. He just seems to be slothful and hedonistic and lazy and just spending his money frivolously, not not living a virtuous lifestyle. But he does not seem to necessarily be, you know, he hasn't uh, committed any great crimes, both either moral or ethical or whatever. But at this time, of course, he wanted people to live a more prudent, just and temperate lifestyle. 
So Charles McCarthy gets a chance to do that, and he does successfully do that. And then we have the second half where we have the Banshee, who is, of course, a figure from paganism and is a foot soldier of the Morrigan. And it's interesting to see this overlap together, um, which which happens quite a bit. Um, next week's story will have a similar thing with uh, witches and priests, but witches tie in a lot more closely with Christianity as they have horrifically in history. And we will talk about that more next week. Um, but we also have this this um, this mystery slightly at the end of the story, um, and that took a little. That's the part that took the kind of focus and reframing off because it almost becomes a totally different story. Um, and the Banshee's place is interesting because this melodramatic um, final twist of a jaded lover in in Jane Osborne wanting to escape her marriage to this neglectful. A future husband in in James Ryan, and she wants to shoot him. Ends up shooting Charles with a very superficial wound that he should have very easily healed from. But as it is his time, and the banshee has appeared, Charles succumbs to his wound. But he is happy to do so because he has accepted his fate and has done what he came to do in his final three years on Earth. Um, but I love the kind of gothic macabre ending of. James Ryan and Jane Osborne, they have been embroiled in this in this plot and in this terrible fate that was all orchestrated just so the death could come about of Charles McCarthy. And that seems to be where the real eerie nature of the Banshee comes into place, that all of the pieces had to line up, that Charles couldn't simply just drop dead because he was in such robust health at this point. There had to be orchestrated this great plot and this accidental misfire for his death to still be natural, I guess, so that his his death still could not be supernatural. It still had to have, so that the greatest skeptic could still say, oh, he died from that. It wasn't that his time came because he had this otherworldly vision and saw the Banshee. But yes, let me know what you thought of this tale, a different kind of story, a different kind of Banshee tale one that was very challenging and very very enjoyable to adapt so hope you all enjoyed it and next week we will have our start our look at witches as i was just saying couldn't be halloween without uh, having a story about witches and i just finished writing the script for next week's episode and or it'll come out in a couple of days it'll probably come out tomorrow um and um this one has kind of rattled me (laughs) This might be one of the more brutal um, and upsetting episodes that I've written. So I might I, I rarely do a trigger warning at the start of episodes, but as I believe a lot of people listen with uh, small children um, to this podcast, which I love. I love the idea of, of these stories being passed down, continued to pass down through generations. Uh, but next week's episode might not be a suitable one, um, but we will see. Uh, I'll leave that for next week. So please do follow me over on Instagram at Fireside Bard. Email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Buy my book, Garden Sea, a neo-myth of home, my poetry collection, which is available in paperback and in Kindle. And support me on Headstuff Plus at headstufffodcast.com. All the links are in the description below. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. 
Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.